Our first Bible reading this morning is Matthew 6, verses 19 to 24. You'll find that on page 811 on the Pew Bibles. And it's titled, Lay Up Treasures in Heaven. Happy Paul got it down. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there, there your heart will also be. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Amen. Our second Bible reading is in two parts. Just reading the last verse of of chapter 9 and then continuing on from chapter, in chapter 10 from 28 to 39. And Nehemiah, sorry, Nehemiah 9, verse 38. Because of all this we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites and our priests. And then from chapter 10, verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the people of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy them from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We are the priests, the Levites and the people. We, the priests, the Levites and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also, to bring to the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, 
the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle. As it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labour. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithes of the tithes of the, tithes of the house of God to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Amen. Good morning. Are you getting ready for a warm day? <laughs> it's summer. We're going to be talking about... Uh, a question we should probably ask ourselves sometimes is, have I honoured my commitment? Are we all at one point in time made some commitment to our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ? We promised things we would do and promised to stop doing other things, I'm sure. In reality, probably, rather than having a, have I honoured my commitment, is uh, speaking in biblical language, should have I, have I honoured my covenant? with the Lord God. The challenge, of course, when you use words like covenant, it's twofold. Firstly, it involves my inability to uphold that covenant on my own. And, of course, it is God's covenant, it is not mine, it is his to make and his to keep because I can't. And a covenant, by definition, of course, also, also is an agreement and as such, you'll have two parties normally, and the two parties will both agree, and both parties will both be able to hold that commitment that they make in that covenant and that agreement. And therein lies my uh, trouble with using that. I'm actually totally aware of my weaknesses and therefore also my inability uh, to keep those promises in full. Whereas God, of course, is both willing and able to keep his commitment in full and for eternity. But let us, uh, let us pray, let us ask the Spirit of God to guide us through an understanding of this passage. Our loving and gracious Father, we ask that you will indeed open our hearts and our minds that we may understand what this chapter 10 truly means for us uh, that we may learn from it and we may respond to it. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are some quite different understandings and concepts of what constitutes a revival uh, these days. Uh, what happened way back in Nineveh, uh, after Jonah had preached condemnation on these people, could rightly be classified as a revival. The king, all from the top, the king all the way down through the, the leadership to the people, had all done 
uh, what was called for and had changed their way of life. They had indeed repented sincerely. They had decided that they were, they were under the authority of God. And um, it did last for almost 150 years, that revival. What is happening now here in chapter 10 in, in, in Nehemiah uh, could also, could be, in its many ways, could be also seen as a revival. As they also are doing what they ought to be doing, as we should do once we also come to an understanding of our sinfulness and indeed our rebelliousness against God. But in here, in end of chapter 9 we read in verse 38 because of all this that's because of all the things they've done wrong we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, Levites and our priests that's no small thing they're doing here ponder, it, ponder that verse and then reflect on what we also read in Ecclesiastes 5.5 5. Uh, we are taught there it is better that you should not vow that you should vow and not pay uh, that verse speaks to the humanity of us on several levels when you think of it more than 50 well over 50% of the population of Australia today uh, get married, they vow to stay together and love each other for all time. And then of course over half of us then decide that that's not going to hold, so we have a divorce. And that lifts itself into other things too. Life in general is filled with promises and for the most I think people genuinely set out to actually hold on to those promises uh, with all the good intentions but in a lot of cases sadly also don't quite make it to the end when we then have Jesus revealed to us we also make promises to be more like him when we meet him when he's revealed to us we kind of promise that we will try to be more like him each and every day and we struggle as we keep that too and we're going to keep it to the end of our days all we are able to do in fact in all of that is we can strive and we can persevere and then we can try again and yet some of course we know sadly they just give up and they walk away they walk away from their promises uh, for all time not only are the entire leadership of Jerusalem making a promise to God and calling this a covenant using God's own language but they even go as far as putting this in writing this time we will also see as we read through the rest of Nehemiah like the rest of us they also are knowing who God is and what it takes to keep a promise could probably at best promise to strive and persevere rather than guarantee in writing that they are going to uphold all these promises and I think sometimes we need to reflect on the language that is used by God when he writes what he writes and come to an understanding of the true depth of the word that he uses, the word covenant. It's a simple fact that God uses the term covenant because he alone is able to actually have the power to make such a lofty agreement and then keep it in full. 
For not only that, keeping it in full, he's keeping it for all eternity. It's not just for a period, it is forever. The princes, the priests, the Levites, and you and I will be hard-stretched to claim such ability. So we may think in terms of an obligation that we actually place on ourselves willingly and lovingly because of who Jesus is when we profess him to be indeed our Lord and our King. And just as a side note, we have maybe heard people say things like this, and I hope you haven't. Lord, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. Make a deal with him, huh? <laughs> yeah. Technically setting up a covenant, but forgetting to have the proviso at the end. And if we do that, well, at least we are in his will. It says, if it be in your will for me, God, that I may do this, but in your strength. See, that is what we need. We need to think in terms of, we need his strength to be able to do any of those things we promise. You and I are totally dependent on him to enable us to uphold a promise we make, even to each other, to our wives and husbands and children. The first 27 verses of chapter 10 simply just lists all the names on this document. And then in verse 28, 29, we're then told, the rest of the people, other than all those names listed, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, gatekeepers, singers, and the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land of the Lord God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law. That was given to Moses by his ser Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rulers and his statutes. That's huge. That's one big promise. It is commendable for all these people to want to do the right things in the eyes of God. But considering the history of their forefathers and their own lived experiences up until this day, including those of recent times of Abraham, David, Solomon, and somewhat more humble approach could maybe have been a, a, an option for them at this point in time. They proceed, however, to list the obligations of the covenant, but before we go there, however, so should they at this stage have stopped and at least acknowledge their inability and their problematics of being a human being, simply repent, as they already had done in chapter 9, and then renew their desired commitment to renew themselves and renew their commitment to God, to persevere in their worship of their God and throw themselves at his mercy. Let's look at what they actually listed as these promises obligations. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Well, in 2 Corinthians, New Testament, 6.14, we are also told, do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? 
or what fellowship can light have with darkness? The beginning of the end of the glory days of Israel, which they had, had been due to the many wives that Solomon had taken from every people tribe around them, including Egypt. 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's, give or take, 700 mother-in-laws, I think. (laughs) But Solomon, in his great wisdom, had been thoroughly led astray by these strangers, or as we call them, unbelievers. This also sadly is a problem for Christians today as some believers still find a way to get hold of a wife or a husband that is outside of their stated faith, creating then for themselves a stressful environment within that union that they set up when it comes to making decisions for the family and coming to an agreement on how we're going to bring up our children and how we make decisions for ourselves. This unholy yoking also permeates to other parts of lives such as in business. If you enter into a partnership, a business partnership with someone that is not a Christian person, with an unbeliever, how on earth are you two then ever going to come together and make godly decisions for that business and honour God with the work you're doing? That becomes an impossibility because you can never agree which is also what Nehemiah then brings up next here in verse 31. And if the people of the land brings any goods or grain or the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. The fourth commandment which you're dealing with here is about remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. This commandment refers to all the way back to creation Uh, at the very, very time where we had the seven days, in Genesis 2-2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work, creating what he had done. Even if we don't uphold the Sabbath being on Saturday, we should maybe at least consider some of the things that are told to do on that Sabbath day, keeping it holy. When we celebrate Sunday, the Lord's Day, today, with things like, we are in church, we come here, we worship together for a couple of hours on a Sunday. But what do we do with the other 22 hours of the Lord's Day? Are we spending that in the Bible in fellowship, are we honouring God with those 22 hours as well? And we will forego the crops, he says, on the seventh year and the exaction of the redempt. Recalling the directives given to the Israelite people in Deuteronomy, at the end of every seven years you shall grant a release and this in the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbour. He shall not exact it of his neighbour, his brother, because the Lord release has been proclaimed. You may remember from previous chapters we've had here in Nehemiah 
that these are the very things, all these things we've just talked about, that all the things thou all have been guilty of, which it was what Nehemiah reprimanded them of as well. So no wonder that they start by listing these things in their obligation and in their promise. Next they move on to exactly those, the obligations they're going to add to that list. In verse 32, we also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the services of the house of God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbath, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. What they're doing, of course, here, they're making a substantial commitment to support the worship of the Lord God in Jerusalem, in the house of God, the temple. And again, they have dishonoured the temple. They have neglected their support of the actual worship in the temple, even after they came back from Babylon. In fact, they had completely lost the first temple, due to the sinfulness of the nation, had been destroyed completely. And now they are jeopardizing the second temple that has been built. In verse 34, We the priests, the Levites and the two people have likewise cast lot for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn the altar of the Lord of our God and is it written in the law. They keep referring back to the law and what they need to do. That is their obligation. They would keep the provisions for the worship of services of the house of God, ensuring that nothing is going to prevent them as a nation, as a people, or as an individual, to honour their Lord God. That's what this whole thing is about. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground, bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of God, the firstborn of our sons and our cattle, and to bring the first of our dough and bring the, to the Levites the tithes from the ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our times where we labour. The whole point of this first of, first of the son, the first of the cattle, uh, it is done before they consider any of their own well-being. It happens right from the word go. Before they feed themselves. It is before they pay their bills and their taxes. They were promising to bring their firstborn to be dedicated to the worship of God. What it basically says there, they want to bring their children to God, ensuring the ongoing teaching of the law and their tithing was to be the first order of priority. It is well, the first thing in their mind when they wake up in the morning is, what can I do for God today? Again, it was all the things they had been guilty of, not doing. In verse 8, As the priest and the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites, when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithes of the tithes to the house of God, to the chambers of the storehouse, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine and oil to the chambers. 
Well, on the surface of things, when we read this and what they are promising and what they have actually got in their mind that they need to do, I think we can be certain there was actually a true willingness amongst the people of, of Israel, the Judah, to change the way they had lived, to change the way they were doing things. They had a true desire to honour God and love each other, no more, no less. And when you then, you and I, make our confession and took on the obligation of being a child of God, is that not what we do also promise? The question at the beginning today, I said, have I honoured my commitment? Well, that, however, is not a question we need to answer in the open. That, that question, the answer that comes out of that, is between you and God alone. But you need to answer it. You need to question it. However, the living out of the answer you give God will to a large extent be evident in the way you are now going to live your life and how we comprehend the seriousness of the commands that are given to us by Jesus 400 years after this event in Jerusalem. We're not going to go on and on about this today other than leaving you with a strong encouragement to ponder this chapter, what the chapter says to us, what the promises that are made and the outliving of those promises in our own lives, both for the Jews in Jerusalem that particular day, but also for you and I here today. When we consider this whole thing, it's about salvation. It is God's way of showing people that this is what you need to do to save yourself. And then knowing we can't do that. Then we come to the time where Jesus dies for our sins on the cross and is resurrected on the third day and giving us new life and new hope. That is, of course, we understand that we cannot save ourselves. But what we can do is we can live our best for him who is both willing and able to take our sins and save us. Let us honour him on the day of the Lord and every day that we live. Let us pray. Our loving and gracious Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your outpouring of love through your Son on the cross that we may indeed come to a true understanding of who we are and what obligations we have that we will honour you with our lives each and every day. May we love you, Lord, may we love each other, and may we live that out in the way we do things. We pray these things and ask for them in Jesus' name. Amen.